evangelicals are in agreement that one of these witnesses is Elijah, with the exception of those who are amillennial. They don't believe any of this future stuff. They think the only event that's left is the second coming. Jesus is not going to rule and reign on the earth. Uh, God's done with Israel. We're the new Israel. They spiritualize all of the scripture. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy. Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. In our study of the book of Revelation, we are studying the passages dealing with the second set of judgments that befall the earth, the trumpet judgments. Today's message is entitled, The New World Order, and it will examine the outcome of the seventh trumpet, which foretells of Christ's imminent return and millennial reign. And we'll get to that aspect next week. But today, we want to begin with a review of the circumstances leading up to the proclamation, including the prophesying of the two witnesses mentioned in the first half of chapter 11. Would you take your Bibles this morning, please, and turn to the book of Revelation chapter 11. We've been working our way through the Revelation, and you can see today's message is entitled, A New World Order, because there is a new world order that is coming that the Lord Jesus will bring. I remember during the first Gulf War, I was a new pastor here, and my second Sunday, half the congregation left because we were all Marines, and I thought, this is not how it's supposed to happen. We're shrinking fast. But those men were going to defend our country. And uh, our president at the time, George H. Bush, said that he was going to crush that bully and butcher, Saddam Hussein, and that he had behind him 32 nations that were supporting his effort that had formed a new world order. But it really was not a new term with him. Woodrow Wilson, after the First World War, what was called the War to End All Wars, formed the League of Nations in order to establish a new world order. Then World War II came, and shortly after that, the United Nations was formed, and so now there is a push for a new world order through a global government. They believe that through a collective unity, they can address the problems of the world better and than any single nation can. Well, that's precisely what the Antichrist is going to attempt, a new world order through a one world government. But our passage reminds us today that the real new world order cannot be established until Jesus comes back. Now, we can give it a lot of titles and call it a lot of different things, but the new world order of the peoples of this world are nothing but the old disorder. They try and they try and they try again, but it never works. As C.S. Lewis used to say, no arrangement of bad eggs will make a good omelet. And how true that is. And after the evil empire, as our President Reagan would refer to the former Soviet states, after that fell, we thought things would be great that it would be a safer world. But unfortunately, it is more dangerous than it has ever been with more people who have their finger on the nuclear trigger than ever before. You say, Pastor, you're just a pessimist. No, I'm an optimist because I know the end of the story and I know what's going to happen. Revelation chapter 11, it sounds like you have found it. We want to begin in verse 15 where we left off last time. Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdom of the world 
has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, and He will reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give you thanks, O Lord God, the Almighty, who are and who were, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. And the nations were enraged, and your wrath came. And the time came for the dead to be judged, and the time to reward your bondservants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, the small and the great, and to destroy those who destroy the earth. And the temple of God, which is in heaven, was opened. And the Ark of the Covenant appeared in his temple. And there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder and an earthquake and a great hailstorm. Now, you'll remember we are in the futuristic section of the book of Revelation. Chapter 1 speaks of things in the past, the things that were. And records that picture of the glorified Christ. Chapters 2 and 3 give us a picture of the things that are, of seven literal actual churches that are functioning. Then in chapter 4, you turn a corner. You come into that section where Jesus said, write about the after these things kinds of stuff. And that starts in chapter 4 and goes all the way through the end of the book. Now, I've told you that if you are going to make sense of Revelation, as you read it over and over and over again, you need to understand its structure, its architecture. Because when you see how it fits together, it just makes so much sense. If you do a quick cursory reading, you might not pick it up. But after about the seventh or eighth reading from end to end, you see, wow, this book is absolutely incredible. This chart will just refresh your mind for a moment. We've seen that beginning in chapter six, all the way into the second coming, there are three sets of seven judgments that come consecutively. First, there are the seal judgments, then there are the trumpet judgments, and then there are the bowl judgments. This seven-year period is called the time of Jacob's trouble in the Old Testament. It's divided into two halves, 1,260 days, 42 months, three and a half years. You'll see all of those designations, time, times, half a time. The first three and a half years when the Antichrist comes and signs a treaty after the church has been removed, Israel is protected. An event takes place right in the middle of the tribulation. Jesus refers to it. Daniel prophesies it. Paul elucidates on what will take place, as will John in the Revelation, an event known as the abomination of desolation that will take place in a rebuilt temple. And when that event takes place, Jesus said, watch out. The world is going to become much worse than man has ever conceived. The first half is tribulation. The second half is typically referred to as the great tribulation. Now, it is true on one occasion, the first half is called great tribulation. Well, if that's great tribulation, then the second half is great, great tribulation, all right? Just see that there's an event that takes place that changes everything. Now, for that event to take place, if you lived 100 years ago, you'd be scratching your head. Because as you read the Revelation and the prophets of the Old Testament, you would see that that would have to take place in Jerusalem, amongst the Jewish people, in a rebuilt temple. In 1895, the first statistics we have since about 70 AD, there was only 25,000 Jewish people living in all of Israel, scattered back, most of them living like nomads in tents, an unwelcomed group of people, a handful in the city of Jerusalem. 
But God did something in fulfillment of prophecy. Ezekiel said, God speaking, for I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands, and bring you into your own lands. Not by accident. God sovereignly has brought now nearly 7 million Jewish people back into the land of Israel. When the former Soviet Union collapsed, many Jews immediately left and they came to Israel. And now there's a spirit of anti-Semitism sweeping Western Europe. Jews are being mocked, laughed at, killed. And the sad thing is, is that supposedly most millennials don't even know there was a Holocaust as it came out this week. It was an awful time, the Holocaust, where six million Jewish people were exterminated. God has now replaced all those people. There's about 12, 12 and a half million Jews on the planet. And God, just as he said, is bringing the Jewish people back into the land. The prophet Ezekiel says that this will happen in the latter times. Two critical prophetic terms, last days, latter times, last days began according to Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost. Why? Because the Bible teaches the imminent return of Christ, that Jesus could come at any moment. Nothing prophetically has ever needed to happen for Jesus to come and catch up his church. Whereas the second coming that happens at the end of that seven-year period is a scheduled program. All kinds of things need to happen. Well, God says in the latter days, which Daniel, like Ezekiel, uses to refer to the very end of time before the second coming, God would gather the Jewish people. You are witnessing that. You are witnessing a prophecy that God wrote of centuries ago that when preachers like me who believe the Bible preached it 100 years ago, people laughed at them. And then God brought them into the land they came to places like the United States during the Second World War, and we turned away boatloads of them. And where could they go? Most went back and were exterminated in the gas chambers. Some realizing that even America would not welcome the Jews, they went to Israel. And so God used 600,000 Jews with 100 million Arabs around them. And he allowed them to reestablish themselves and become a nation on May the 14th, 1948, the 70th anniversary. I'll be in Israel on that day when they celebrate it. It is a great day. You need Jews for verse 1 to be fulfilled. Look at verse 1. Then there was given a measuring rod like a staff. And someone said, get up and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship it. How can you measure a temple that doesn't exist? Well, first you need Jewish people who would want it to exist. God's already given us that. The Temple Institute in the city of Jerusalem is comprised of Orthodox Jewish men who have reproduced all of the temple furniture, and they are planning to rebuild the temple. Now, remember, the first temple was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar in 587 B.C., the one that Solomon built. Seventy years later, just as God said, how did God fulfill that future prophecy written in Jeremiah? Literally. He literally said, in 70 years, you'll come back. That's how he's going to fulfill all of the future prophecies. Literally. And so we live in a day where people have discounted Israel. They're spiritualizing the book of Revelation. They don't think that these things are important. They're very important. Every single of the 333 prophecies for the first coming were literally fulfilled. When God said Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, he meant that. When he said he would be pierced for our iniquities, he meant that. 
Every single prophecy was literally fulfilled, as it will be for the second coming. Seventy years later, they come back under Zerubbabel. They build the second temple. Herod, of course, does a tremendous facelift on it, makes it one of the great seven wonders of the world, depending on which list you're reading. But just as Jesus said, not one stone would stand upon another. And the place was totally obliterated. This is what the Temple Mount looked like in Jesus' day. On one side, you had the portico of Solomon. You read about that in Acts. And silver and gold I have not, but what I have, get up and walk right there, that place on the right side of your screen. On the opposite end was the fortress Antonia, the place where the army officers would be housed. And when the Jews came in for the three required uh, festivals, they would fill the city with Roman soldiers, especially. They would be overloaded to keep peace in the land. And then in the middle, thereabouts, was the, the temple that was uh, rebuilt again by Zerubbabel. But in 70 AD, just as Jesus said, it was dismantled. Every single stone was torn apart. Now, if you go to the Temple Mount today, you'll see this. It's 37 acres. Uh, sometimes you'll read 35 acres, and they're describing the open property, discounting the buildings. But they have as many as 450,000 Muslims up on top of that 37-acre piece of property at some of their great festivals. On the left side, you can't see the dome, but it's the al Aska Mosque. And then there, in about the middle, it's, uh, is uh, what's called the Dome of the Rock. The Dome of the Rock is not a mosque. It's a monument. It's a shrine to Muhammad, who supposedly got on his winged horse and flew into heaven. Now, understand, Jerusalem is mentioned over a thousand times in the Bible. Do you know how many times Jerusalem is mentioned in the Quran? That's right, a big zero. Not once. Yet, of course, the Muslims want to claim this property as their own. They don't want Jewish people even walking up there. They have a right to be up there. One, because God gave them the right, and the Israeli government gave them the right. But most Orthodox Jews especially won't walk up there because they see it as a defiled place. In either case, where is the temple going to be rebuilt? One theory, which I'll mention just because it's gained a lot of popularity, because Christians are sometimes suckers for sensationalism. We can be. And uh, the fellow who uh, proposed this theory said that the final temple, the third temple, will not be built on top of the Temple Mount, but he argues that the original temple was built outside the wall in the original city of David. David came in, conquered the Jebusites, and um, it was on the south wall was the original city of David. There are two cities of David in the Bible, Bethlehem and Jerusalem. City of David, Bethlehem, where David was born, but then the city of David that he conquered from the Jebusites. In either case, um, they think it's going to be built there. Who proposed that idea? A guy named Ernest Martin, who was with a group called the Worldwide Church of God. Armstrong, who started the Worldwide Church of God, denied the deity of Christ, denied the doctrine of the Trinity, denied salvation by grace alone. He orchestrated a worldwide cult of sorts, and his magazine was called The Plain Truth. He used to be able to find it in airports all across America. Interestingly, a fellow by the name of Bob Kanuke adopted the viewpoint of a cult, 
because, again, it's sensational. Uh, you know, he's the same guy who said, well, the Protestant view of where Jesus died is wrong. The Catholic view of where Jesus has died, there's been two opinions. One is right, one is wrong. But he came up with a third opinion that no one else has seen in 2,000 years. He's the same fellow who said that he found the literal, actual anchor of the Apostle Paul when he shipwrecked there in the harbor of Malta. It sells books, but there's no scholarship to it. It was not there. But I mention it because so many of you have asked me about it. A second view, as you can see on this next slide, is that the original temple was where the Dome of the Rock is now placed. And many Jewish people in Israel believe that. Well, to build a new temple, the Dome of the Rock would have to be gone. Well, listen, God doesn't need our help. We don't have to create some false view and put the temple mount outside of the city. Remember, David conquered the Jebusites. Then on one occasion when there was a great plague, he bought the mount that we call today the Temple Mount. It was owned by a guy by the name of Aruna. And Chronicles tells us that the threshing floor that was an elevated place where you would thresh the wheat, uh, that that was the same place that Solomon built the very first temple. In either case, it would be World War III to take that dome off of there to put the temple. Another view held by a number of Jewish people uh, is that the actual temple was not where the Dome of the Rock was, but adjacent to it, uh, between the fortress Antonia and the Dome of the Rock. And there would be 150 feet between the two structures, and that that's where it was, and it's argued for many reasons. One is that lines up perfectly with the Eastern Gate. When Jesus came in on Palm Sunday, as we discussed last week, he came through the Eastern Gate. 70 AD, as God prophesied in Ezekiel, the gate was shut. It's buried under rubble, the original gates. The one you see visibly has been opened and closed a number of times, so closed for over 500 years, because the Muslims know Messiah is supposed to come through the eastern gate. In either case, it lines up perfectly. If he came through the eastern gate, which the scripture says he will at his second coming, his feet will touch the Mount of Olives. In front of him is this north-south valley called the Kidron Valley. He's going to create another valley that will go east-west. And I'm sure he'll blow the doors of that eastern gate right open. And he's going to walk right through it. And there's a perfect alignment, not to mention Josephus, a first century historian. You have to take him for what he's worth and that it's not scripture but he argued that the Jewish people, when they took the red heifer, they would bring him to the top of the Mount of Olives, and then they would release him into the wilderness, which is on the other side of the Mount of Olives, and that the place they did it, they could look directly past the eastern gate at the temple. And that's why a number of Jewish people believe the temple should be there, not to mention that's where the water came from the aqueduct from Bethlehem. I don't know. I don't know. We would need to do archaeological studies up there to be able to say dogmatically 
And that's not going to happen anytime soon. But this temple is going to be rebuilt. How do I know? Because God said it is going to be rebuilt. And it will be built probably right there where the Dome of the Spirits is today. So God is sovereign. He is in control. He knows what he is about. Then if you remember when we came to verse 3 to tighten the context just a little bit more, God said, I will grant authority to my two witnesses and they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. So God predicts 144,000 Jews preaching the gospel plus two witnesses. Evangelicals are in agreement that one of these witnesses is Elijah, with the exception of those who are amillennial. They don't believe any of this future stuff. They think the only event that's left is the second coming. Jesus is not going to rule and reign on the earth. Uh, God's done with Israel. We're the new Israel. They spiritualize all of the scripture. But those who take the Bible seriously are in full agreement that one of those two witnesses will be Elijah. How do we know that? Because Jesus said Elijah will come again before the great and terrible day of the Lord. And he was echoing the same truth that the prophet Malachi gave in the fourth chapter. I have a sermon, if you're interested, the second coming of Elijah. We talk about the second coming of Christ. Elijah is coming again. The other witness, most would say, is Moses. Why? Because the description of these two witnesses perfectly mimic the ministries of Elijah and Moses. In addition, if you remember, Jesus had a conversation on a place called the Mount of Transfiguration, and he was having a discussion on the second coming that would usher in the kingdom. And we read in Matthew 17, six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun and his garments became as white as light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them talking with him. Now, hear me on this. I wouldn't spill blood or break fellowship if you think it's Elijah and Enoch, if you think it's Elijah and John the Baptist, and I think it's Elijah and Moses. We can debate that until Jesus comes back. But one thing we cannot debate, and that is what these men are going to do. We will see that um, the world will despise them and hate them. And eventually they will be killed and there will be great rejoicing across the planet. But that rejoicing three and a half days later will turn into great shock as God literally brings them back to life, their bodies that were unburied, and will take them to heaven. So understand where we're at. Seven seals. And the seventh seal is contained seven trumpets. And the seventh trumpet is contained the seven bowls. That's what you learn in the Revelation. The seven seals, you can only see one at a time. Unlike the trumpets, you can see all of them. And if you can see all of the trumpets, then you can see what's in the seventh trumpet, which is the seven bowls of wrath that ushers in the second coming of Jesus. So that's where we're at. And with each of these series of seven, there has always been a space of time. One through six seals, space of time, not literal time, but time in terms for the reader. And then the seventh seal happens. And so what God does in each of these parentheses is he shows you what's been going on during this time. In the middle of the tribulation period, when the abomination of desolation takes place right in the middle of the 70 years, the Bible teaches, 
Then the seven trumpets start. Between the sixth and seventh trumpet, again, there's a space of time, so to speak, a parenthesis where God shows us what is happening, what is going on. Now, with that said, three dramatic events are underscored here in verses 15 through 19. If you want to jot down a few notes, first, there's an announcement of victory. There's an announcement of victory. Verse 15, then the seventh angel sounded and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he will reign forever and ever. Now this verse seems out of order because this happens when Jesus comes again and we won't read about that, the second coming until the 19th chapter. But don't forget, this section of Scripture is being written, read not only by us, but by future saints, tribulation saints. They are living during the worst time in human history. And when the seventh trumpet is blown, it's like there's more, yes, there's more, but there's more than just wrath, Jesus is coming back. And it will be a time of really great encouragement to them. But it's a time of encouragement for us as well because all Scripture is inspired by God. God didn't write the book of Revelation just for those who will read it during the seven-year period. He wrote it for us as well so that we can learn from it. And so John's writing of the Messiah's sovereign rule on the earth would have been a great encouragement to a first-century reader. Why? Because this book is written in 95 A.D. It's a solid date. Domitian, the emperor, is the emperor, the world leader, so to speak. And we have written in a number of different rocks and documents that he gave himself the title, God the Lord and the Lord of the Earth. That's why once a year, unless you bow down before Domitian and offered incense, you're either persecuted, killed, or exiled. Unless you said, Domitian is Lord, Caesar Curios, Caesar is Lord then you would be hurt. The Christians who love Jesus would only say, Jesus Kyrios, Kyrios, Jesus is Lord. They would not say Caesar is Lord. They would only say Jesus is Lord. And so where's John? He's in exile. He's a political prisoner. And God in his sovereignty protected him. Why? So he could write the book of Revelation in that cave. I've been to that very cave in which John wrote. There's only one possible place there on the Isle of Patmos there in Turkey where it could have happened. Then the seventh angel sounded. There it is again. The seventh angel in that seventh trumpet, remember, is how many bowls? Seven that bring about the second coming. And so what you're going to see here in verses 11 to 15 is kind of a a summary. It's kind of a schematic of things that are yet to come. And he's going to build off of this summary and unfold it for us. The seventh angel sounded and what happened? There were loud voices in heaven. Do you remember what happened when the seventh seal was open? Oh man, when the seventh seal was open, the first trumpet blew And there was 30 minutes of silence in heaven. But when this particular event takes place, no silence, only praises, loud voices. Some of your translations say great voices. And these great voices are distinguished a couple verses from now from another group of people who are praising God who are called the 24 elders. Next week, we'll take an in-depth look at the sounding of the seventh angel, which proclaims the imminent return and millennial reign of Christ. 
To listen again to this message entitled The New World Order, be sure to download and use the Search the Scriptures app from the App Store for iPhones or Androids, or visit our website, searchthescriptures.org. You can also order it on a DVD or CD by calling us at 877-787-7478 and requesting program REV27. Tomorrow, Dr. Brogy's wife, Audrey's in this time slot with her program for women, Mothering from the Heart. And when we return Monday, we'll continue our look at the New World Order as we search the Scriptures. <music> 